We have been covering the last few weeks the post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. And today we'll look at his appearance to Thomas. Whenever the name of Thomas comes up, it is the episode in, in John chapter 20 that normally people think about. Where Thomas says, well, unless I see the prints of the nails in his hand and his feet and, and place my hand in his side, I, I will not believe. And, and for many people, that's all they know about Thomas. And by the way, he was not the man who invented the English muffin. And by the way, the English muffin was not invented in England. But I believe it was in Pennsylvania. But I guess it's easier to say English muffin than it is Pennsylvania muffin. I don't know. People know him as Thomas, the only disciple that doubted that Jesus had truly risen from the dead. Oh, yeah. The others certainly were uncertain, but that uncertainty was short-lived. And by the end of that day, that uh, Sunday, that Resurrection Sunday, where Jesus arose and appeared to them, they had all come to believe. Yet Thomas, we are told, was not with them. Eight days later, he still doubts. And so he is ever known, it seems, for his doubting. Even today we still use, although not as uh, often as what was used before, the term a doubting Thomas. Thomas was not with the group that Sunday. Eight days later, he joined them. Where, he, where had he been? We can only surmise that unbelief was the thing that kept him, kept him away from his, because his own words give us this conclusion. But if this episode in John 20 were not recorded, what sort of image would we have of him, if any? Well, to the surprise, perhaps, of some, John 20 is not the only place that we run into Thomas in Scripture. There are three different passages where Thomas is mentioned, where Thomas speaks. And one thing seems quite clear. He was not the jolly one of the twelve. Perhaps the shortest book ever written was Thomas's book of jokes. He seems to be lacking as an encourager. His tone often sounds negative, his disposition almost sullen, definitely on the gloomy side. He was, of course, as we might say, definitely a glass half-empty type. You could almost imagine the other saying to him, well, Thomas, let's go and harvest some figs today or tomorrow. And Thomas would say, no, no, it's going to rain. 
And the others might say, well, Thomas, it hasn't rained in three weeks. And he would say, that's my point exactly. We are overdue. And by the time we get there, those figs will probably be bug infected. But like all of us, Thomas had a, another side to him. A side that would show loyalty. A side that would show devotion. A side that would show courage and fortitude. And we don't often hear those words attached to Thomas. As we come to the 11th chapter of of John, we see at the end of the 10th chapter, Jesus is, is making it clear And he's getting his disciples ready for the fact that he's going to be gone. But there's also something else as we come to the end of chapter 10. Jesus has stirred up the Jewish leadership once again. And beginning at chapter 10 and verse 34, Jesus answered them, the Jewish leaders, and said, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God. If I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I in him. And there in verse 39 Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. The Jewish leaders had once again received a feather ruffling from Jesus, and what was their response? Uh, If you can't beat him, silence him. So uh, this is going on continually, and will continue now, and increase in intensity as time goes on. When we come to chapter 11, we find right on the heels of this that uh, Lazarus has died. Jesus has moved from there because of the threats of the Jews to the other side of the Jordan. He's in less hostile surroundings. And in chapter 11, in verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. And then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? Now it's hard to to look at this and say that they purely had the safety of Jesus in mind. Because where Jesus went, what would necessarily happen with them? Well, they'd go to the same place. So you kind of get an idea from their response. They don't really want to go. They have no desire to go forward with this idea. So in verse 9, Jesus answered, 
Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I may go that I may wake him up. But I go that I may wake him up. Well, then in verse 12, his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking a rest in sleep. So then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And then he said, I, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. And then verse 16. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Let us also go that we may die with him. You might notice that basically the disciples were saying, no, we don't want to go. We have no eyes towards heading towards that direction. So they're all going against what Christ wants to do, except for one. Thomas says, let's go. Let's go. And though it sounds so negative, listen closely at the words. Yes, at first when you hear it, he says, let us also go, that what? That we may die with him. Oh, man. Thomas, Thomas, Thomas. You just can't see the bright side of anything, can you? But let's look at that phrase once more, that we may die with him. He was, it's a statement that's filled with devotion. He was ready to put into action the words that we spoke of last week where Simon Peter said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so did all the others agree. Here's the one saying, let's put this into action. Let's go. If we have to die with him, we'll die with him. But we'll be with him. I take from this as well that Thomas was seen to some degree as a leader because he speaks up and he says, let's go. The next time that we see Thomas is in chapter 14. And here for sure, Jesus has been preparing them for the fact that he will not be with them much longer. He's preparing them for what is to come. And so in, in chapter 13 and verse 31, so when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, Where I am going, you cannot come. And so now I say to you, 
A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And this line of thought continues as we come into chapter 14. In verse 1, Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. From this statement of Jesus where he says, and where I go, you know, and the way, you know, Notice in verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. And how can we know the way? It makes sense. If we don't know the way or the place that he's going, how can we know the way to get there? You can't argue with the logic of that. But we see also a slide to the negative side, yet in the midst of that, he's not saying, I don't want to go. He's saying, I want to go, but I don't know how. That's different than just saying, no, I'm not going. I I want to go. I want to go where you go, but I I don't know where it is and how to get there. Now, Jesus had just given them good news and words of hope. That I'm going, but I'm going and I'll prepare a place for you that where I am, you will be also. So those are good words, good words full of hope and expectation. But Thomas sees the departure of Jesus to some degree as the extinction of hope. So people look at that and say, you see, Thomas is being Thomas. But Thomas wasn't the only one confused. In verse 7, After Jesus had said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. See, Philip didn't catch what was going on very well either. And Jesus' answer to him is is showing that Jesus is just a little bit put off by by that. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? So before we, we cast Thomas as the one who is Mr. Negative here, and the man lacking in understanding, there's Philip too. It's not hard to see. That as one who looks perhaps at the negative side. Who sees things as potentially very bad. Thomas has a lot of children. 
many spiritual children, perhaps even more negative than he. Those who each week are coming out with dire predictions. What is just around the corner? Those who, as they see trouble in the world, they can't understand the fact that Jesus said, yes, there's going to be trouble, and trouble are the birth pangs, but all they're caught in is the labor, the time of labor. They're not thinking about the child. They're caught in that one thing. Oh, this is painful. Yes, but what's the pain going to produce? So you see, there's a lot, of, a lot of people caught up in that kind of mentality. Well, now, the third and last time that we see Thomas in Scripture in the New Testament comes to chapter 20 of John's Gospel. And I'm glad there's more written than what we see in verse 24. Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The first thing that's mentioned about Thomas is his absence. Again, he has a lot of spiritual children in that realm as well. He was not with them when Jesus came. He was not with the disciples that night, that, that night that, of the day that Jesus was resurrected. And if the idea of Jesus' departure moved Thomas to despair, what would the actual death of Jesus do to him? You can tell how the death impacted him. Notice in verse 25, the other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. And so he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. You see how the death impacted him. He does not say, if I see him, I will believe him. If I look upon his face, I will believe him. If I hear him speak my name, I will believe him. But he can't get past the image of his death. And because he absented himself from the assembling with the others, he stayed an extra week in despair. But what made Thomas show up on this day? Verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Why did he miss that first day, but all of a sudden on the eighth day, he's there? It would seem that the others pressed upon him to join them. Verse 25 seems to take place before the eighth day. They, they come to him. They tell him, we have seen the Lord. 
Now, others might have said, let him alone. We're far better off without his negativity. But no, to their credit, the Lord they loved had risen and had appeared to them. And they must share the good news and the joy with their fellow disciple. There are, among any congregation, some personalities that are perhaps less pleasant than others. But they are as much a part of the body as the more pleasant ones. But note his response to them. Unless I see his hands and the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. It's the same as saying to them, I, I, I just don't believe you all. You may be all set with what you think you have seen, but I need proof. It is sad to think about this, that their word to him was not enough. And you can see the, the things going on in his mind. Well, if he was with you, where did, if he's with you, with you, why didn't he stay with you? Why is he with you now? And if he's not with you now, where's he gone? There's something very important here. I don't want you to miss this at all because it's very easy to slide right by it and not see the dimensions of the things that are taking place. Here's something very important. They said what to Thomas? We have seen the Lord. But you notice they did not say what the Lord had said to them. We've seen in the last couple of weeks what Jesus said to the men on the road to Emmaus. And remember, now think about them. They begin to shine after a moment, but... Think about them when Jesus joins them. Where are they going? They're going away from Jerusalem. Their backs are turned to Jerusalem. They're going away. They're going back home. So let's not look at them at first and say, here's a bright and shining example of those who are fully devoted to the truth and full of faith. But the, the men on the road to Emmaus, when they came back and they told those who were in the, the room, and perhaps that was the upper room, they spoke of what had happened, and they spoke of how it was that Jesus opened to them the Scriptures, section by section, pointing to them where he was. Yes, and that very night that Jesus was with the other disciples in Luke chapter 24, as, as we already seen but it's good to refresh our minds once again as, as to what took place 
In Luke chapter 24 and verse 44, he said to them, These are the things which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. But what did the ten say to Thomas? What did they say to him? We have seen the Lord. Nothing else. We have seen the Lord. Thomas was not moved. Why? Because they came to him exalting an experience. That's the key. They're coming... We, hey, guess what? We've seen the Lord. We've just had the greatest experience. We've seen the risen Lord. And again, as A.W. Pink points out, they told Thomas they had seen the Lord, but apparently they said nothing of the gracious and wondrous words which they had heard from his lips. This, my friends, produces a great lesson. We've gone a long way to get to where we are, yes. But here's a great lesson coming to us here in these scriptures. As I said in the beginning of this series, that each time Jesus appears, he teaches something else to them. And he deals with them differently. And this gives us a lesson, and at the same time, it gives us a great warning. We are not to proclaim our experiences. We are to proclaim the word. You know, someone had a great experience. He'll talk about it. But he puts it in perspective. And that's Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. He says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice. We had this experience. When Christ was in the midst of the transfiguration, we were there. We heard the voice. It was amazing. We heard the voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the mountain. But notice how he finishes it. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this first that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. He goes on. What are you saying? He said, we have a more sure word. We had the experience. We saw it. But you know what's more sure than the actual experience? The word of God. And so we had the experience, but we had something much better as well. 
Jesus didn't come into the room and say, listen, brothers, I want to tell you about the experience that I had. I want to tell you what it's like to die and come back to life. But what did he do instead? He came to them and said, the scriptures have been fulfilled. Jesus could have talked for hours about experiences, but the primary thing that mattered most was the word. How it pointed to and proved all things. So we can't really blame Thomas completely. The disciples didn't seem to follow the example of Jesus. But we must understand, yes, experience counts. But experience is not primary. In the midst of the revivalistic tradition that has so grasped so many churches over time, the emphasis has been on experience. And experience generally that was worked up psychologically on people. So they would be pre-programmed to say, you're going to get this experience. If you don't get this experience, then something's lacking in you. But the proof of everything to them was experience. And we have inherited this kind of mindset so often. And we put what is secondary as primary and put as primary what is, we move it to secondary. Don't make the mistake of reversing It's not my experience that verifies the word. If anything, it's the other way around. The word has to verify any experience. And if you have an experience apart from the word of God, how do you know that it's a legitimate experience? You know, there are people who on bare feet can walk 50 feet on burning coals and get to the other side and they don't seem to be burned. And they can, people can look at it. I've never seen anything like that. How did their feet not burn? And there are people who follow other religions that get ecstatic and start speaking in a babbling kind of form. There are people having all kinds of experiences all the time. But your experience, as important as it is, I don't say that you should never have experiences, but experiences have to be brought into and under the realm of the Word of God. Do you think when Jesus said to Thomas, All right, Thomas. Reach your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. You think Jesus was inviting Thomas to have an experience? Well, maybe. But maybe something else because... Thomas should have known 
something about those marks that they were a fulfillment of prophecy. In Psalm 22 and verse 16, they pierced my hands and my feet. You see, when Jesus said, look, go ahead, touch, basically what he was saying, Thomas, what was prophesied about me is fulfilled in what you see. And so Thomas went from doubt to doxology. And in that moment, he was completely transformed, if you will. And in verse 28 of John chapter 20, he makes the greatest statement of Jesus' divinity that any man has ever said. He said, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. I said, well, what about Peter? Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. That's real good. He said, you're the Messiah. I get it. That's fine. But Thomas went even further. My Lord and my God. No one, no other man up to that point had ever said anything that rock solid about the divinity of Christ. And yeah, you could say, well, that was after the experience, but the experience was to draw him in to see what the word of God had said that he should have known. They pierced my hands and my feet. And so as we come to the end of this, we say, well, what is this for us? This is what we trust. This is the more sure. You're going to have all kinds of experiences. Perhaps even if you went through high school, some of you fell in love 15 times. Oh, it was real. It was real. I'm having this great experience. I finally know what love is. And then next week, where's so-and-so? Oh, we moved on. You see, experience can be counterfeit. But the word of God cannot. Let's stand together for prayer.